you're suffering from fatigue, depression, anxiety, brain fog, yet the doctors can't find the cause, it may actually be your diet. I'm not talking about too few vegetables or too many hamburgers. I'm actually talking about sugar. So guess what? A surprisingly large percentage of all of us are addicted to sugar. It's as addictive as cocaine, believe it or not, and it's wreaking havoc on our bodies. The good news is you can easily fix it and feel better, and you don't need drugs, you don't need anything, you just need a few steps and a few changes. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. And when we're done, don't forget to rate and review it so that we can spread the word. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to doctor of addictive nutrition, Kathleen Desmaisons. Following a career in mental health and nutrition, Dr. Desmaisons started a treatment center for substance abuse. After working with thousands of clients, she came to see that sugar is a common element among many addicts and hypothesized that sugar itself might be a hugely addictive substance. She coined the term sugar sensitivity to describe those who are vulnerable to sugar and carbohydrate addictions, and then wrote what has become a best-selling book, Potatoes Not Prozac, which explains sugar sensitivity and its effects on both physical and emotional health. In the book, she outlines a methodology to heal that sugar addiction. With 20 years of additional data, Potatoes Not Prozac has just been revised and updated and is available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about Dr. Desmaisons' work and her programs for overcoming sugar addiction at radiantrecovery.com. So welcome. May I call you Kathleen? Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. I am not so great on my French pronunciation, but your name is beautiful. Thank you. All right. So let's start off because sugar sensitivity is such an enormous thing. And there's so many people that are most likely sugar sensitive and don't really realize it. So can you like start out with just kind of an overview profile of what you observed and how you even developed the theory of sugar sensitivity? Well, what I noticed first of all was the connection going backwards from alcoholism and addiction to a very high use and interest in sweet things. So I started with just observing that and also in my own personal experience, I mean, my father was an alcoholic and I stopped drinking at a very early age, but boy, my attachment to sugar was pretty strong. So when I put that, I put that together and I thought, I wonder what the connection is. And um, actually when I went back to school, because I wanted to find, find more about that, and found out that alcohol and sugar affect the same neurotransmitters that morphine and heroin and Oxycontin do. So there's a whole package that comes together. And most people don't realize that. They, I think now more people realize when I first started it was just, oh, I have a sweet tooth with no sense about the, input, the significance of that. And what's happening in the body? I'm not, I don't want to quite go into the biochemistry yet, but just that the whole concept of this, that there really is this physical, biochemical... Yes, uh, it is. Uh, uh, call it it's addiction. It's a character but, defect. Yes. Uh, it's that literally some people have brains that are wired differently, and those people are born with lower levels of serotonin and lower levels of beta endorphin and when that happens 
they're drawn to the effect that sugar has more intensely. So a person who doesn't have that brain has, you know, could eat a bite out of a cookie and say, oh, I'm not hungry, and leave it on the counter. For those of us who have that brain, the idea of a cookie on the counter with one bite of it is just incomprehensible. Like if we have a cookie, we have the whole thing, we have the whole plate. So it's a very um, striking, and this shows up very early so that, you know, the children who are screaming because they want sugar, that's real. That's real, and it's not just some kind of psychological thing or whatever. It's actually a physical response to wanting sugar and to needing it. So let me ask you this, though, because sugar, the use of sugar in in the American diet has skyrocketed in the last, what, 50, 60 years? Yeah. So 100 years ago, was this a thing? There were alcoholics 100 years ago, but sugar wasn't the same thing. And were the, were people being born that way then? And are they, like, is it, you know, how much of it is genetic versus people like me, children of the 60s who got raised on Pop-Tarts, Frosted Flakes, you know, you name it, every convenient well, sweet thing. that's a very good question. We don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I think, obviously, from my perspective, it's a genetic predisposition that gets activated or not by what we eat when we're little. So that uh, I think that, and, and it hasn't it hasn't been, it's, it's a very complex matrix. And in science, matrix things are very difficult to test because you have more than one variable and they're, who knows? So my best guess is that if we look, say, at the Native American population that had no exposure to sugar or, or alcohol and were given sugar, uh, lots of sugar and alcohol, and as a group of people are now so significantly sugar sensitive that it's a, it's a vulnerability that gets turned on. And so I don't spend a whole lot of time speculating about where it came from or why. I just am intrigued by can we turn it off once it's been activated? Can we turn it down? Can we use the best parts of it? Because it's not a bad thing to have. It's just a bad thing when it's out of balance. Right. So now let me ask you this, though, because can you, like, I... I'm, I'm sugar sensitive. I, I know that I am. I know that I've known that I've been for years, um, but I don't have parents that are alcoholics. I have no alcohol in my family, and yet I'm sugar sensitive. In contrast, I know someone whose both parents were, were alcoholics, and he doesn't care for sugar at all. Like it's just not. He doesn't have a sweet tooth at all. Mm-hmm. So is it, you know, I'll call it all or nothing. Is there a gradient scale of this that people can be a little bit sugar sensitive, or it may or may not be expressed in different ways? I think it's, it's a gradient scale. It's just like uh, the scale that we would see with alcoholics, that some people have a first drink when they're 13, and that is it. They are sliding in, down the scale within a year. Other people, it develops over time. So that what I do is I say people know, to be honest with you, people know if they have this, 
I, I could be talking to a group of 500 people and I'll give them my famous diagnostic chocolate chip cookie test and the people who are sugar sensitive will start laughing before I've even gone into the question about are you sugar sensitive because people know that they can't stop eating it or they go out to dinner and they're thinking about dessert and not about what kind of meat they want to have or are the vegetables fresh and good they're thinking about what kind of dessert is available so is that so what's the what's the famous chocolate chip cookie sugar test uh, if you walk into a room and someone has just taken a, a pan full of chocolate chip cookies out of the oven and no one else is in the room what would you do <laughs> and is are the people who are not sugar sensitive say well am I hungry the rest of us are just laughing. It's sort of, okay, I'll eat the whole pan if I can. <laughs> well, you don't want to get caught. Like, is it close enough that I would go and stick my nose in it and just sniff it? Exactly. You right. don't want to get caught. That, see, people who aren't sugar sensitive, they don't ever think about getting caught. Who are sugar Never. sensitive. They just, if they are sugar sensitive, they'll just go straight into the pan. Exactly. They have There's no guilt no or remorse. There. That's a terrible thing to say about those people. But it's it's a it's a if you have people laughing about it right. and there's no judgment assigned to it and we can just look at it and say, This is biochemical, you're not a bad person. It's how you're wired. And it means that you are sensitive, intuitive, empathetic, uh, tuned into the world, caring about other people. So it's not it's not a negative thing. Uh, and I want to I want to talk about that. You just kind of talked about this profile, and I want to go into more of that in a second. Let's break down what some of these what sugar sensitivity symptoms because people again besides the chocolate chip cookie test, they, there are other things that are going on in their bodies that they may not realize is sugar sensitivity. So can we talk about some of the, some uh, of the like, symptoms? Okay, yes, now we we'll have symptoms. to start with saying sugar sensitivity is unbalanced because people who are sugar sensitive and who are balanced and eating the right kinds of foods don't have these symptoms. But if you're tired all the time, if you're cranky, if you have mood swings, so sometimes you feel fantastic and other times you feel like something that the cat dragged in, that kind of mood that goes up and down and that seems to be unpredictable. Uh, that package of Kathleen, I'm going to pause you for one second, and we're going. To you, sorry, because I don't want this. I don't want some weird sound going on in the background. It's bizarre. Uh, it's gone now. So. Yeah, it is gone now. Okay, fine, cool. All right. So you talked about this this profile. I want to go back to talking in a little bit about this personality profile that you had actually described to me when we spoke a couple weeks ago. But let's break down the specific symptoms that somebody should be aware of because I think a lot of people don't re even realize that they're sugar sensitive, but they're being diagnosed with all sorts of other ailments when the root mm -hmm. may be this chemical imbalance. So where should we start? Should we start with physical symptoms? Well, the kinds of physical symptoms would include fatigue, unexplained fatigue, irritability, crankiness, mood swings, going in and out, sometimes feeling fantastic other times feeling fat, uh, just horrible and uh, for no reason in particular. 
um, having no energy, being depressed, being anxious, all of these things can be directly related to sugar sensitivity that's out of balance. And people honestly do not realize that it's coming from that, and so they look for all sorts of other solutions, and it doesn't get better, and that's very discouraging. And I'm realizing as you're saying that, that we didn't talk about, I'm going to back up a little, we didn't talk about an important element of this, which is that sugar sensitivity is not just about sugar, that it's also about two other chemicals in the body, beta endorphins and serotonin, so that there's this multi-chemical out of balance, so that these people, when you're saying that they might be moody, they might be irritable, they might be depressed, doctors are running and giving them antidepressants, and they're giving them other medications that are impacting these these other chemicals in the body, right? Correct. Have I now utterly confused everybody? <laughs> I apologize, world. Um, so let's back up for a second that, the, the, that this isn't just sugar, and it's not just blood sugar swings, but it's the beta endorphins, it's the serotonin. What are, the, what, what are those three, and why are they working together in the sugar complex? Sugar acts like a drug in the brain. And it activates beta endorphin, which means you feel good, your self-esteem goes up, you feel like you're in love when, you, when you've got enough. And people who are sugar sensitive get a bigger hit from the drug effect of sugar than a regular person would. And you wouldn't know that that was happening, that when you have sugar you feel warm and relaxed and on top of the world, strong, brave, and then it wears off. And you, you're you not thinking, oh, I need some more of my drug. You're just thinking, I don't feel well, and I know, oh, if I have something sweet, I'll feel better. If you're in withdrawal from the, the sugar you had four hours ago and you need some more and you have it, then you feel really good. So you buy more of those products. So manufacturers may not consciously be aware of this. They just know if the sugar level is at a certain level, more people buy it, more people need it, more products are sold. So you get into a cycle without realizing that's what's happening. Right, and again, so the sugar and the beta endorphins. Beta endorphins generally are pain modulators. It's a sense of well-being. Serotonin is a mood modulator. So the antidepressants work on serotonin so that they, people have more serotonin running through their body. Is that correct? If they have more, ser- more of the, the chemical that makes the serotonin available in their brain. Right, so that, okay, so that then, then that improves their mood. So then back to these physical symptoms that someone may be thinking, may be experiencing fatigue, um, mood issues. I think you said pain as well. Um, you can feel achy, yes? Yes, you feel achy. In, in when, you ha- when you have sugar, you feel less achy. When you have sweet things and uh, carbohydrates, your mood improves. And so you're drawn to using those things essentially for the drug effect so and part of if you don't know that's happening then it feels sort of inexplicable and if you happen to go to the doctor when you're in the 
depression part of it, then it's logical that you can be diagnosed as being depressive when in fact something else is going on that's controlled by what you're eating. And then you said an interesting thing in the book, which is that just be, that they'll give them the antidepressants, they'll feel better for a little bit, but that antidepressant only works on one piece of the chemical imbalance. Correct. And then I'll call it the effects wear off, they feel bad again and everybody's scratching their head. Can you explain that a little? Well, for example, if you, if you have a depression that's caused by inadequate levels of serotonin and you're given a drug that takes care of that, it will help you feel better. So antidepressants can, in fact, help you feel better. But if your depression is coming from a different chemical in your brain, like beta endorphin, the antidepressant won't touch it. And then you'll feel really discouraged because you're trying to find a solution and you can't, or you keep having to try different drugs. So this is really about going underneath the symptoms and looking at a variable that most medical people certainly don't think about, a lot of regular people think about because they're reading and they're learning about these things. 25 years ago, nobody knew about this at all. And now there's a lot of, I think, a lot more awareness. And then so, okay, and then so what other ailments are people potentially being diagnosed and treated for beyond depression and being given antidepressants? Because again, I always get concerned, you go and you present with a symptom of uh, brain fog or you present with a symptom of, of depression or anxiety. You, you paint some pretty strong pictures in the book of people with some extreme anxiety issues, depression issues, mood issues, and then they're getting treated on those isolated symptoms. So what else might people be being prescribed medication for, and what do they need to look out for? And if they eat a cookie, is that a test that, <laughs> to say that that medication is not the answer? No. No, and I would never say that. Right. So um, the important thing is to look at if you feel terrible, if you just feel terrible, and it's sort of nonspecific. I mean, that's the, the criteria to look at how you're eating, because if you're sugar sensitive, how you're eating has a huge impact on how you feel. I mean, and I've worked with thousands of people who were diagnosed as being bipolar, and when they changed what they were eating, those symptoms just went away. And what it does is it clarifies if you alter what people are eating, it clarifies the places when, if you really are bipolar and you need to have medication for that, then you're, you are correctly diagnosed. So it's not like saying, oh, this fixes everything. What it does is it takes out the misinformation out of the equation so you can get to what's really going on. So what's a typical diet? Like what, when, when people would present at the clinic or these you know, people that were... Yeah. So what's the typical diet that these people are eating? Can you paint the picture? Because I'm sure there are a whole uh, lot of people sure. out there that have a very similar diet. No breakfast. So skipping breakfast, having lots of coffee, having something sweet 
uh, at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning or falling off the cliff at 1 o'clock because I haven't eaten uh, and then having uh, mostly carbs and sugars or having uh, a lot, like going for a long time and not having anything and then having a lot of sugar, uh, craving, having cravings, eating on the run, eating junk food, or wanting, always wanting to be on a diet. So going from eating a lot, being out of control, and then going on a diet and restricting what you're eating. So, so it's pretty typical standard American diet, basically. And the extent of what I would call restriction, where you don't eat, because if you don't eat, your body releases beta endorphin and then you feel lean and mean and strong and interesting. And that again is biochemically induced. So it's not, and it's very hidden, like people do not realize that what they're doing is creating this feeling bad. In our culture, not eating is considered virtuous. Well, the new hip thing is this intermittent fasting and timed diet. So that's one of the new trends is for people to only eat eight yes, hours a day. And is that antithetical for these so people? It's even more virtuous. <laughs> but is that, is that, you know, I've kind of gotten to the point in life where I've seen so many diets, so many eating strategies between, you know, paleo and intermittent yep. fasting and keto and Mediterranean, all those sorts of like, and I've gotten to the point where I think everything is good and everything is bad depending on your biochemistry. So is intermittent fasting, in your point of view, um, antithetical to what sugar-sensitive people need? Is Might work for some people. right? Intermittent fasting is not a good thing. If you're sugar-sensitive, what you need is enough food on time enough good food on time and it's so simple that it's people tend to discount it because it's so simple it doesn't have to be expensive it's not sexy but you can do you can do you can take all those wonderful pictures from the magazines of all the new things you know the pictures of lamb chops with wonderful vegetables you can do that kind of eating and enjoy food and make great food and eat enough and eat it on time and feel wonderful. That's the thing that's most significant about this, that what I'm advocating is that you get, you get up and you have breakfast and you have lunch and you have dinner and you eat good food and you're not having sweet things all day long or grazing all day long or always on the prowl and that your life is not defined by wanting more sweet things. So the interesting thing to me is that, I mean, among the many things you're saying are, that are all interesting, but um, that what you described is in some ways the eating plan of a diabetic where they're supposed to eat regularly and eat good food. And yet sugar sensitivity is not necessarily it's not about diabetes necessarily and it's not about weight loss that this is a different part of optimal functioning it's underneath 
so that if you eat this way, ironically, we have thousands of people who are diagnosed as pre-diabetic or diabetic. They eat this way and they fall into normal ranges. Their body changes and they're not in that risk factor anymore. They eat this way and they love what they're eating. It's not, it's not deprivation. It's not like, oh my God, you can't have this and this and this and this. It's eating good food, eating, learning to look for food that tastes great and that it's not about deprivation. And I think that's the thing that I try to stress all the time is that food becomes a healer. You're not addicted to food. You, you get addicted to sugar. You get addicted to saturated fats. But that's components of the food. And then if you, you start eating in such a way that you're eating great food and you look forward to it and it tastes wonderful and you prepare it and you know how to use spice, and it tastes terrific, then you don't feel deprived. You don't feel as if you're being punished or that you have to struggle with, oh my God, I can't have anything. All right, so let's talk about, let's, you have a seven point plan for people to overcome their, their sugar sensitivity. And before you say that people before they start, because um, you know everyone get, goes on a diet and then they fail on it. So that you have an interesting um, kind of test or challenge for people to identify, to look at their personality profile for how they can address, the, like uh, go out, go at, address the seven point plan. Right? You talk about looking at your travel style. Yeah, what I do is try to have people have fun, and I want to stress for you that we're not we're not fixing the sugar sensitivity, we're healing the addiction. And we don't want to take away the sugar sensitivity because that's a good thing. We want to balance the sugar sensitivity. So we start with something really outrageous, like having breakfast every morning within an hour of getting up. And honestly, people say, oh, that's easy. No problem. I can do that. And then it takes months because if you have breakfast, then you don't get the morning high of not eating. And people resist giving that up. They don't realize that that's what happened, was, was happening right away. And it's very hard for them to get up and say, okay, I'm gonna have something to eat, I'm gonna have some protein, I'm gonna have some kind of complex carb. And it's, it takes months and months and they can't do they can't do it within an hour. Uh, they forget. <laughs> so, so we're really trying to change. And the, the part about what is your style, we don't do that until way further down the line. At first, the beginning part is very, very simple and very focused. And it's like you don't have to change your life. You don't have to change your whole day. You just focus on breakfast. Yeah, well, don't you t- don't you talk to people about like if they're planners versus easygoing, so that they know like if you're a planner, then just pre-plan what your breakfast is going to be, so that yes. that fits with your style versus if you're easygoing, you like you make sure that you've got <laughs> exactly. the food in the refrigerator. If you plan it the night before, if you're a planner, you plan it the night before, or you have the same thing every day. A lot of people they just have the same thing every day, so they don't have to think about it. 
and then it gets habituated, and then they start having fun because they're not they're not thrashing around every morning about what they're going to have for breakfast. Right. And what's your ideal breakfast? So you talked about protein and complex carb, but let's get specific. So is that dinner for breakfast, which is what I always eat, like chicken and brown rice? Uh, some people do that. Uh, many people have shake. Many people have a protein shake where they have, get protein powder and they put um, some uh, oatmeal in the protein shake. So the complex carb is right in the shake. And they just have a drink and they put it in a cup that they really, they get very attached to their cups. And the routine of I get up, make the shake, I drink the shake, life is good, I don't have to worry about anything else. Uh, some people like do just what you do and have uh, dinner for breakfast. So that part of style is really important. You find what works for you, what you like the taste of, what you look forward to having, what's easy, what makes you happy to want to have breakfast. And we're not talking about a huge breakfast, right? That it's, again, for a 120-pound woman, I think it's about three ounces of protein. It's not, it's not a slab of beef. That's correct. Like, no, I, I, I'm laughing at the idea of having a slab of beef for breakfast. Yes. That would be difficult. Fred Flintstone's, uh, you know, Tyrannosaurus steak. Right. Maybe a hunk of bacon. Right. <laughs> but that's because I, I like, I'm a, one of the sugar-sensitive people who likes the fat part. So I usually have, I usually have a shake. And do you have a, pro, is there um, different proteins any protein is fine, or vegan versus animal protein? What's your opinion on, on vegan proteins? Well, my bias is I use the shake that I make. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have, a, I have a whey protein isolate shake that I get made for me that I know where the cows live. Yes. I know what their lives are like. They're happy cows. They eat New Mexico grass. They're well-treated. Right. And but but it's a so dairy-based shake, a happy a dairy-based based shake. It's a dairy, but you know what? It really, what matters is that you get something you like, that you'll use, and it doesn't have a whole lot of extra junk in it. So if you read the label and you like the taste of it, then that's a good thing to use. And if it has a label that's got 15 different ingredients and all sorts of uh, sweeteners, then choose something else, basically. Got it. All right. So ne- then step two, you tell people to take a, keep a food journal. Yeah. So that's teaching people to know what actually goes into their mouths and when. So it's t- teaching people to pay attention. And that's where you learn, for example, that you get up at 7 and you don't eat until 11. If you have a food journal then that tells you that. Or if you have lunch at 11 and you don't eat again until 8 at night, and you can look at your food journal and say, oh, you know, I went nine hours without eating. No wonder I was cranky. So that kind of record gives you a relationship with your body. And you ask them to keep track not just of the food, but also their physical, how they feel physically and emotionally. Yes, um, how you feel, 
many people who are sugar sensitive are not in relationship to their body, so they don't know how they feel physically, and that's easier than how you feel emotionally. So you learn how to, you know, oh, you get a headache every afternoon at 3 o'clock, or you get tired at 10 o'clock in the morning, or you're cranky in the morning when you get up and you, you're not a morning person and you don't get started until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Those kinds of, that's good data. Those kinds of data points are very helpful in being able to know what's going on in your body. Yeah, and again, trying to connect because people don't necessarily realize. They think they've got an emotional issue because they've got depression or anxiety, and then they're keeping this food journal, and they don't realize one's causing the other. Right. If you have it written down and you find that you get anxious an hour before you eat, that gives you information that that anxiety may not be a a psychological thing, but it's your blood sugar has dropped, and when your blood sugar drops, you need to eat, and if you eat, you feel fine. So yeah. it's, a, it's a way to differentiate what, what is actually going on for you. And this journal is actually, so it's not even just, just listing my foods, because if I have a symptom at 3 in the afternoon and it's separate from my food, I still need to put that down. Yes. Right. So that's just really just a very detailed starting to watch your day. And you even said you had a couple examples in the book where if someone you ate something today, but you might have symptoms related to it a day or two later. Yes. And generally people don't learn that right off. That's not something that you start a food journal and a month later you have the skill to be able to make those kinds of connections. But if you start it and you learn to do it, and you learn it incrementally, that after you have some time and some experience in working with it, you can begin to see what kinds of patterns are there and what is the data that's in that food journal for you to use. So it comes out over time. Sometimes people get discouraged because they say, oh, I don't know what it says. I can't, I can't discern it. And I say, that doesn't come until later. Just keep doing it because it's a good practice. Right, and just starting to get in touch with their body. All right, so now you tell people that they should eat three meals a day, no snacking. And i got to tell you, I've been trying to do that, and it's super hard. I'm a fail. I've been doing it for weeks, and I'm such a fail. Well, it's... I would, if you, if I were working with you as a client, I would very gently suggest to you they're going way too fast. Okay. <laughs> that if you're, if you're, if you haven't mastered breakfast yet, um, it's probably not good to try to go on and do try to do step three, which is three meals, because the mastery of breakfast is kind of pivotal link to being able to do the rest of it. And so I would be gently encouraging you to slow down and not try to do as as much because you've got a model of here's the diet, do the diet. And what we're trying to do is change the behaviors. Right. And the breakfast is is setting the base for the day? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then, but what happens, like you get hungry in between and what happens, so one of the challenges is some people get up early and exercise, right? So how do you deal with, you know, get up early and exercise and can't eat on a big full breakfast and then later on you're hungry? Like it's, or what, okay, so we'll, we'll start hungry. there and then I'll go back to the why you're doing the three meals. <laughs> My head It's just, wonderful because you're a prime example of how it works. <laughs> so the, the fun part is if you're hungry, you need to eat something. That's a clue. If you're hungry, you need to eat. So if you're getting up and you're exercising, part of, part of what we would be looking at is if you're exercising, you haven't eaten since the day before, you go and exercise and you haven't had breakfast, then you're putting yourself into a negative place and your blood sugar is tanked and then you try to have breakfast like you don't ever catch up so that part of it is learning how to know what to have before you go exercise so that you can exercise without being feeling sick to your stomach and then having something when you come back so that you're not in deficit and that you're you, we don't want you to be hungry so that's part of the clue of saying, looking at what went before the hunger, why are you hungry, what's going on. So there's a whole process that is, is learning how to know what to do and how to proceed through it. And then, and the rationale though, so with the three meals a day, part of that is trying to also retrain the body and the and the um, receptors? Yes. Uh, the idea of three meals a day is to eat and then stop and then wait, which is part of healing addiction, is learning how to stop and wait. And most people don't realize that because it seems, when you hear it, it sounds self-evident. But generally speaking, people don't connect with that reality of only having three meals a day means you have a meal and then you stop and then you wait. And people who are addictive, that is not something we're good at, which is stopping and waiting. So part of it is training all of those things as we go through the process. So it's as much a training of emotional and psychological self-control to be able to work I, <laughs> through some of that pain and discomfort? You're very funny. You make me laugh. I, I don't use terms I like try. control. <laughs> because that's so harsh. It's like you have to control yourself. You have to contain yourself. This is, is just you learn to wait, which is a little, a little kinder telling you to get self-control. Can you tell that I'm an East Coaster and you're out in New Mexico in a Madrid? <laughs> oh, I think it's more like how, how long I've been doing the food than where I live because <laughs> I grew up in the East Coast. So it just, it's making me laugh because it, it really is a portrait of the kind of kindness that comes out of the, the harshness that we have and I, I've been where you are like it's 
you've got to get this under control. You have to do it right. You need to diet. You need to weigh a certain amount. You need to do your exercise. You need to do yoga. You need to eat healthy foods. You can't have any sugar, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I've been doing the food for a long time. And I just don't feel that way anymore. It's How can I eat so that I feel good? What can I eat that tastes good, that I look forward to? Uh, I don't I don't worry about self-control because that is biochemical that is serotonin levels and impulse control which is the scientific term for it comes with increased serotonin so if and it's all in balance one variable is I live where there's a lot of sunlight too <laughs> so I have that, a lot of that helps too control. right <laughs> But so if it's like a chicken and egg thing. So if everything is in balance, then the the addictive desires aren't there. Then the That's cravings correct. aren't there. That so, is exactly exactly correct. And that's what these seven steps are designed to do is to get you in balance in a loving and gentle way. And then one day you sort of turn around and you say, wait a minute, I'm not in being impulsive. I, this isn't a struggle. I'm enjoying what I'm eating. I don't have cravings. I'm not in pain. I'm not thrashing around. I'm not a drama puppy anymore. And it's wonderful. And you said, so one other step, there are a few other steps. They're all outlined so clearly and beautifully in, in your book. Um, but I want to talk for one brief moment about, you, you suggest that people take some vitamins each day. Why is that? Like vitamin C well, in particular and a B multi. Take right. A B complex. Right. I do not suggest that you take a specific like don't split up the Bs because they're really designed to work synergistically. So I suggest that people have vitamin C, zinc, and B complex. And really I just chose those three to keep it really simple. Those are the three vitamins that are involved with carbohydrate metabolism. And uh, I know that sugar-sensitive people and the marketing industry both love taking lots of supplements. (laughs) So part of what I was trying to do is just make this really simple. But those are the three that help support the body for all this other, I'll call it metabolism, for lack of a better word. Exactly, and you don't, you don't have to figure out every piece of it. It's just you do the package, and then your body knows what to do. And then you have one other interesting thing that you tell people to do, which is to eat a potato at night. Yeah, and people ask me, like, how did I choose a potato? Well, the idea is you have some kind of carbohydrate enhances the formation of serotonin. Like there's a whole chemical process that the release of insulin enhances the formation of serotonin. So I'm Irish, so I like potatoes. Uh, they're widely available, they're cheap, and it's kind of alliterative, potatoes, not Prozac. Uh, so it, it sort of, it was born out of efficiency. So it could have been bulgur, and, not Pro, Prozac, or brown rice, not Prozac. <laughs> that doesn't quite have the same alliterative effect. Not quite. But don't be fooled because the potato actually has a huge effect on how you feel. And it does raise your serotonin levels. 
And that has now been, I mean, that's established in the scientific literature. And, uh, you know, I, I've done this with guys who went out, would go out for camping and uh, take a two-pound potato from Costco, and, you know, bake the potatoes in the fireplace and then have the potatoes before they went to bed. And they'd all have vision quests at night. And oh, wow. Be awakened, you know, a new person in the morning. But uh, it's really, even after all this time, you know, it works. It's very effective. And don't do it until after you've done the other steps. So don't go out and just buy a potato and see how you feel. No, that's actually, potatoes is actually step five or six, I think, right? Yeah. It's pretty far down. All right, yeah. so one other thing I just want to ask you. When you, you, you alluded to this before about how, sugar sensitivity is actually a good thing, that it's your body's not broken, and that you view this like sugar-sensitive people, you have this, uh, I'll call it personality profile. There's a profile of what, what sugar-sensitive people are like. Can you describe that? Because it was really fascinating to me that like, there's a characteristic to them. That Yes. Um, I would say sugar-sensitive people are, number one, sensitive. So... Uh, intuitive, compassionate, tuned in to how people feel, less armored, more aware of other people, more aware. Sugar-sensitive people are the children who cry when a baby bird falls out of the desk. Um, So there's a whole profile of awareness and sensitivity less armored. So I personally think that's a good thing. Now, the interesting thing is if you're a sugar-sensitive boy, that's a hard thing because culturally those feelings that I would value, particularly as, as a girl, uh, and find uh, helpful, if you're a boy, that those could be very painful. And many of the sugar-sensitive men that I've worked with had a really hard time as young men or boys because they were called sissy, because they cried when the, they would cry when they would have, see the baby bird that fell out of the nest and be told, oh, you know, buck it up, you need to man up and not have feelings like that. But then again, like this is... It's not like none of that gets, I'll call it, fixed by learning to eat and balance these hormones. These are, well, it's just right. that the way. I don't think it's something that needs to be fixed. Right. No, but uh, like that now, won't go away. Like you could go, well, you know, right. am I sensitive because my serotonin is off or my beta endorphins are off. Right. But that's not it. There's a, there's a sensitivity to the, to the ups and downs of it, but, that's, but the sensitivity is pervasive is what you're saying. The, the bad parts of it go away, the good parts get enhanced. So you still feel intuitive and aware. Uh, you may cry less. Right. <laughs> you don't embarrass yourself when you're, you're at a staff meeting. You cry inappropriately. So when you change your food, then you have more uh, emotional discernment, shall I say. But the, the, the kindness and the tenderness just gets enhanced and that's a good thing we could all use some more kindness i think so i think so 
Kathleen Damazone, your book is fabulous. You're fabulous. Thank you so much. So your book, Potatoes Not Prozac, available all over the place. Your website, radiantrecovery.com. And everybody listening, rate us, review us, so that we can uh, spread the word of Kathleen and all of our other great experts. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you. I'm talking to addictive nutrition expert, Dr. Kathleen Desmaisons. Her book, Potatoes Not Prozac, gave a whole new perspective to mental health when she talked about the connection between depression, anxiety, mental clarity, and that favorite American food, sugar. Through her work at addiction treatment centers, Kathleen saw the powerful impact that sugar has on the brains of the millions of people who are sensitive to it and the dramatic ways in which their mental, emotional, and physical health improved when their sugar consumption was curtailed. Identifying ways in which simple lifestyle choices are negatively impacting our lives and how making different choices can improve them is just one example of what our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, is all about. And Kathleen Damazon is just one example of the types of experts, not just in healthy living, but in all aspects of your life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.